0: Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to have our scripture reading in Ephesians 4, verses 29 through 32. We're continuing a, our sermon from last week because I ran out of time. <laughs> well, I had planned to uh, finish it today, but uh, I didn't plan, plan to, uh, to finish as much as that. I, didn't, I planned on going further last week than I did. Uh, but anyways, it worked out, and the Lord worked it out for good, I think. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to read verses 29 through 32. Verse 29 says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And being ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for the chance that we have to be here in your house. I pray, Lord, that you would still our minds and our thoughts and help us to focus upon you today and help us to hear from you and uh, know that uh, what we hear is from you, from your Holy Spirit. I pray that you fill me with your Holy Spirit as I preach, Lord, and guide and direct all my thoughts. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Well, we've been going through a series called The Great Life. Um, One of the biggest lies that Satan tells Christians is to downplay in our lives the understanding of the life that God has prepared for us. Here on this earth, a lot of times Christians think that the great life is over there in heaven. And it will be, amen? It's going to be so much better. But God has prepared a promised land for his Christians here on earth as well. Uh, Life that is yielded to the Holy Spirit is a great life. In the life of a spiritual man, the spirit-filled man, is a life of peace and joy and love. But Satan does not want us to experience those things. And we're continuing today on a mini-series within this series, talking about the three conditions of being the spiritual man, a spirit-filled man. And that goes that's man in the general sense, by the way, ladies. Uh, I'm just talking about mankind here, okay? Uh, but all people can be spirit-filled uh, that are Christians. Uh, last week we looked at these verses in Ephesians chapter four that tell us that uh, not to grieve the spirit of the, holy, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit of God. And we saw that it's sin that grieves the Holy Spirit. And when the Christian sins, the ministry of the Holy Spirit must change from a ministry through him, through the Christian to a ministry of conviction to the, holy, to, to the man. And so given the fact that when we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit, and are not being led of the Spirit, God has directed. Uh, God directly has given us through His Word and through His Holy Spirit directions regarding how to deal with this sin in our lives, so that we don't have those continuing effects of that sin in our lives. And first, God has provided that the sin of His children may be prevented as a whole. Okay, we don't have to sin. Amen. Amen. <laughs> We don't have to sin, okay? It's not, uh, it's, it's just because we have a sin nature doesn't mean we can rest in that and say, well, I have a sin nature, I just don't have a choice. That's not true, okay? God has given us a way of escape, okay? Now, we understand, though, with that sin nature and the, and the enemies that we face, the world, the flesh, and the devil, uh, we often will fail. And, but when we do sin, God has provided a way of escape, and uh, God has provided a way for us to, uh, to come back to him. And, uh, but we don't have to sin. And while it's true that we do sin, uh, we will never be sinless, uh, even from this point on. We don't have to sin when we're faced with temptation. But it's also true that we, do not, uh, that, that we don't have to continue in that sin and continue with the effects of that sin. And secondly, he, he's a provided a way for us to deal with those effects. Uh, when we sin, our lives may be cured from the effects of the sin, that, uh, the effects that it has on our lives. So what is this cure that God has provided for the effects? Well, we saw that just in one word, it describes the whole responsibility of the unsaved in coming to a right relationship with Christ. And last week we talked about one word, and I use this hand over here to talk about that one word. And I've got a ring on that hand, so it hits good. But uh, I have one word over here, uh, that, that one word that sums up what the person, unsaved person's responsibility is to come to right relationship with Christ. What was that word? Anybody remember? Believe. That's right. That's what sums up everything we need to come into right relationship with Christ. Believe. Okay? Now that we are saved, likewise, one word sums up the cure for the effects of sin in the Christian's lives. And there's one word that we, we've already been saved, we're not lose our salvation, but we lose fellowship. We lose the spirit-filled life. We grieve the Holy Spirit. And to uh, if we continue in that, without doing this one word, we will have effects of that sin on our lives. and It will affect us grievously. Uh, but that one word that will cure the effect of the sins on the Christian life is what? Confess. confess. That's right. So over here, the unsaved need to believe. Over here, the Christians, once they are saved and they sin, they need to confess. Confession, the word confession means to agree with God. It's the idea of saying, God, I have done this and I agree with you that this is sin. We are lining up with the truth, and we understand that you, that I have sinned. Uh, it's not repentance. That is something completely different, although often it comes at the same time, and it should <laughs> come at the same time. But the words don't mean the same thing. Uh, that, the repentance is a change of mind about that sin and what we're going to do with that sin. It should lead to a change of behavior, Amen. If our mind is truly changed, if we have godly sorrow and godly repentance, it will change our behavior. But confession is agreeing with God that what he has already said, that was uh, that what we have done, whether a lie, whether a wrong thought, whether a theft, whether an unkindness, whatever it is that we've done, we come to God and confess. We tell him that we agree and recognize that what we did was sin, <clears throat> and then we should repent at that time if we're going to see the effects come uh, uh, to, to be able to see those effects cured. So we then looked at the seven major passages, or we began looking at the seven major passages uh, last week that teach us about the restoration of the believer from the sin affecting their lives. And first we looked at John 13 where we see Jesus in the upper room. And Jesus gave us an incredibly deep picture of the Christian and the need for confession there. Um, and as we went, looked at that, we saw, uh, first of all, letter A, only Christ can cleanse from sin. So that was the first point, letter A, there in your notes. Uh, John 13, 1 through 11 talks about that. We're not going to take the time to reread all those verses. We're not going to take the time to re-preach all of these, but I'm just going to sum it up here. As Christ is the only one who, could take, uh, who can cleanse sin, he took himself upon himself, the form of a servant, and he washed the disciples' feet in a clear picture of confession. As Peter at first, began to stop Jesus from washing his feet, Jesus explained to Peter uh, that he just didn't understand what was going on, and he needed he needed to wash his feet. Peter relented and said uh, and said, "Wash all of me then." Uh, and I almost wonder if that uh, wrong speaking was ordained of God. <laughs> because it gave open opening to a clear picture, of the need for not re-salvation, but confession. And Jesus uh, knew what he was illustrating here. He said the Christian does not need to be washed all over again once they're clean. He's already completely washed. He only needs to wash the feet, the part that gets dirty as he walks through the roads of life. The sin that he has committed after forgiveness, the sin he has committed, he needs to confess it, Agree with God that that was sin, and repent of it. The Christian does not need to seek salvation again and again. He is saved, and once he's saved, he's always saved. The Christian only needs to confess the dirt that has gotten on him since he last washed. What a beautiful picture, amen? And we are wholly clean if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior. We only need to confess and remove the taint of the sin that we have committed since then. The second passage we looked at told us, the letter B, confession is the one condition. The second passage we looked at was 1 John chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through chapter 2, verse 2. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but I am going to read uh, pertinent part of that, verses 7 through 9, where it says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. By the way, if we say that we, do, uh, that we have no sin, we deceive God? No. He knows. He's all-knowing. He already knows the condition we are. That's why confession is agreeing with him. Amen? Uh, he knows. We only deceive ourselves. Okay, And the truth is not in us. Verse 9 says, If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess our sins, we are forgiven, we are cleansed, and we have fellowship with God. There's only one condition for which we can be cleansed, forgiven, and have fellowship again with the Father and with the Lord and with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is confession. When we sin, we grieve God, the Holy Spirit, and when we are convicted of that sin, we must quickly renew that fellowship and be forgiven and be cleansed and be, by confessing, agreeing with God about that sin. The third passage we looked at was 1 Corinthians eleven, thirty-one and 32, where we learned self-judgment saves from chastening. Self-judgment saves from chastening. 1 Corinthians 11, 31 and 32 says, For if we should judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. If we judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Uh, God is waiting for us to judge ourselves. Hear the, conviction, uh, uh, hear the conviction in our heart for the Holy Spirit and God's word. We hear that and we confess our sin. Uh, but if we do not, if we don't judge ourselves, then we are chastened of the Lord. We learn about that in Hebrews chapter 12, the fourth passage that we learned. And we learned there, uh, letter D, chasten, uh, chastisement is correcting. We often think of chastisement as punishment, uh, but that is not what the word means. It means to teach, okay? And so chastisement is correcting. Hebrews twelve six says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. And there is, uh, there is uh, where we had to, this is where we had to stop last week. And, and so let's pick up where we left off and look at the fifth passage. And that's found in Psalm 51. Psalm 51, we We're here we see uh, an Old Testament saint's example. An Old Testament saint's example. Psalm 51, verses 1 through 19, the passage will be up on the screen for you. We'll read that together. It says, have mercy upon me, O God. According to thy love and kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions. What is that? Confession. That's confession. He's acknowledging his transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, or else I would give it. Thou desirest not in, uh, delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not sub- uh, dem- despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Thou shalt be, be, thou, then shalt thou be blessed, uh, pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offerings. Then shall they offer bullock, Upon thine altar, only after confession is the sacrifice of animals talking about here in this Old Testament time. But the heart has to be right first. God is not interested in that until the heart is right. And David has had very greatly and very publicly sinned. Uh, Here he lays himself open for all to see his broken and contrite heart. It's interesting to note that he didn't pray to have his salvation restored unto him. Instead, he said, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And One of the benefits of confession and repentance is the fruit of the Spirit being restored in the life of the believer, growing once again in our lives, and that joy comes back. We'll once again feel the joy of the Lord, the love that God always has for us. We'll begin to feel it once again, experience it, and and be able to share it with people around us. But when we are experiencing the chastening of our Father's love is not really what we're feeling. How many of have ever heard the phrase, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many have ever heard the phrase, this, hurts, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you? Why? From the parent side, it's because they love that child. And it hurts to discipline a child. But all we see is, yeah, right. <laughs> I'm the one feeling the pain, right? But once the chastening is over and our heart has changed, we can feel the love that was always there. We don't feel the love when the relationship is broken. But once our heart has changed, we feel that love once again that was always there the whole time. There are aspects of this prayer here in Psalm 51 that can't be applied to the church age. He says in verse 11, take not thy Holy Spirit from us. In the Old Testament days, the Holy Spirit had not yet come to indwell the believers. However, the Holy Spirit would come upon believers to accomplish things God had wanted them to accomplish. Uh, For the church age Christians, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, which is our seal until the day of redemption. But the Bible says that we grieve the Holy Spirit when we sin. Psalm 51 is a beautiful psalm. An absolute beautiful psalm. I wish I had time to go through and just pick it completely apart. I preached on it a few years ago uh, when we were walking through psalms. Uh, but, boy, it's just it is a beautiful psalm. Do a Bible study one day, and one day, maybe I'll preach on this, just this psalm again. But uh, it is just absolute beautiful picture of what a Christian ought to do, even though some of it applies to the Old Testament saints. It's a beautiful picture of repentance. God gave us this Old Testament example for us to see what it looks like to truly confess and repent and the change in spirit and change in heart as we go back to a, a right fellowship with God. But what a great testimony of godly sorrow and confession and repentance. And then letter F. I can't remember what number this is. Six, is it? Uh, old, uh, we see an example of Christian repentance now. This sixth passage is found in 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians was written by Paul to correct the church and admonish the church for sin that was in their church. In 2 Corinthians, we see that they heard, they were convicted, and they repented. Now, was everything fixed? and There's no more sin? They don't ever sin again? No. But uh, the major things that they were dealing with there in that Corinthian church, they had repented of. In fact, we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 7... Verses 8 through 11, you'll see it here on the screen, it says, For though I made you sorrow with a letter, 1 Corinthians, I do not repent. I do not change my mind. Though I did repent, for I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. He says, uh, for, for a moment I felt sorry that I wrote that epistle, because I saw the incredible sorrow that you had from it. He said, but just for a moment I felt that, because I realized It was true. What happened was for good. Verse 9 says, Now I rejoice. Not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage uh, by us in nothing. In other words, you were hurt by what you heard for no reason. It was was for a reason that, that this accomplished. Verse 10 for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. Verse 11 says, For behold, the selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge, in all things, ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Boy, this passage right here is a wonderful picture of godly sorrow leading to repentance. How many of you have heard someone say, "I'm sorry?" And it got to the point to where you say, "I'm not so sure they're sorry. How many's ever experienced that? I have. Yeah. I remember when I was a boy, I would tell my dad, "I'm sorry." And he said, "Son, that's just words." That's just words. It really doesn't mean anything until you act upon it and change. See, confession will only go so far without repentance. And we may repent, we may change our mind, but we don't repent and change our actions. Godly sorrow brings about true repentance, though. When it gets through to the heart... And our mind and our heart is truly changed. Boy, look at this last verse; it's still up there. Look at what godly sorrow brings. For behold, the selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, this godly sorrow, what carefulness it wrought in you, the carefulness it, it was you were care uh, very careful to deal with the whole issue. What clearing of yourselves you dealt with it. Okay. You, if it was between two people, you dealt with it. Yea, what indignation. You, you were upset about what that, what that sin caused. Okay. You look at that sin and you're indignant about it. What fear? Godly fear. Awe. Inspira- uh, 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 godly uh, fear. What vehement desire. Not just a desire to do right, but boy, it created a vehement desire. A great desire to do what's right from now on. What zeal, same type of thing, that, uh, that idea of fervency. What revenge, uh, the idea of, of, of uh, doing what's right always. In all things you have approved yourself, or proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. There's, he said there's no doubt at all. You made it so clear in the actions that you took to repent. It's obviously clear that you have repented from this sin. We have a brilliant picture of conviction displayed here. A true sorrow is shown by Christians here in this church in Corinth. In Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, he rebuked them for the sins in the church. The Holy Spirit convicted them. And here he speaks of the godly sorrow for their sin that they had experienced and expressed. They felt sorrow, and that sorrow led them to repentance. Worldly sorrow is sorry that they got caught. Godly sorrow always leads to change. And that's the difference. You can always tell when someone has repented, truly repented, because there's change. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. And it resulted in carefulness or eagerness to repent, as it evidenced by verse 11. It resulted in their clearing their conscience. It resulted in indignation and fear. The word indignation speaks to anger or annoyance by the sin that had been committed. And godly sorrow also resi- resulted in vehement desire, great longing to make it right, zeal to keep it right, revenge. This can be confusing at first, uh, but the word revenge is used here in the essence of justice being met, meaning making sure that justice was taken care of. It was under the blood, confessed, forgiven, and made right. But they wanted to make sure that it was thoroughly taken care of. Not just between God, not just a a vertical relationship, but also the horizontal relationship with each other. And they went above and beyond, or actually they went just the right amount, to take care of the sin that was going on in the church. And this is the transforming power and the lasting effect of true repentance and confession in the Christian's life. The seventh and final passage is found in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 32. The threefold repentance parable here. Here in Luke 15, we hear the parable of the, lost, uh, of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And I'm going to try to read this through this quickly, just so we can hear the full passage. It's the word of God that cuts through, uh, not my words. And so I want to make sure I read this passage, even though it's going to take a little bit of time. It says in verse 1, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured and saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he had found it, he layeth it upon his shoulders and rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you, That likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Either that woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which was lost. Likewise I say unto you, There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. And he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into this field to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto them, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him. Put on his, a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet. Bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat, and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive again, and he was lost, and is found. And they began to be merry. Now the elder son was in the field, and he, as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry, and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee; neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as that this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost, and is found. We'll stop there. The value here of these passages is seen in the heart of the Father. Amen? The heart of the one that's seeking. The emphasis is on the shepherd, not the lamb. The emphasis is on the woman, not the lost coin. The emphasis is on the Father, not the Son. It's vitally important to note that these parables were written to the Jews, not to Christians. The application to Christians from these parables are only in what we have in common between us and the Jews that we both need to confess when we come to God. The Jews here and the Pharisees were mumbling and complaining that Jesus received publicans, Jewish tax collectors, and sinners and ate with them. And so Jesus spake this parable unto them or parables It addressed the murmuring Pharisees and scribes. There seems to be an almost universal thinking that these three parables illustrate salvation. But it's not. It's a picture of restoration. The sheep already belonged to the shepherd. Amen? The coin already belonged to the woman. Amen? The son was already a son of the father. If we were talking about salvation, it would be a great picture of salvation. However, it would be a great picture of universalism. The belief that every human will be saved, then would have to be true. Because the shepherd seeks until he finds that which is lost. Therefore, he would seek everyone until they're found. But universalism is very clearly untrue, according to the rest of scripture. So we cannot apply this passage to salvation. No, this parable is not a passage of salvation. It's a parable of a backslidden Christian. When the shepherd found the sheep, he returns to the ninety and nine who were safe in the fold. By the way, does that look like a good proportion in comparing the saved ninety-nine and the one lost? No, there is far more likely to have ninety-nine unsaved and one lost. Amen? No, it's a picture of restoration. If we're talking about the salvation, the 99 would be lost. Uh, verse 5 through 7 says, And he, when he found it, he layeth it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. My sheep. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons. The ones that stayed right, which need no repentance. Although repentance is a part of salvation, we must change our mind about our condition. It is a part of our daily lives in the flesh as well. We need to repent every day. The second parable is the lost coin. The coin belonged to the woman the whole time. It had just been misplaced. There is a seeking and a finding that which was lost. The emphasis is on the joy of the one who found the repenting sinner. The third division of the parable is the certain man. Here, a very personal look into the heart of the father is shown through the heart of this father. The prodigal son chose to leave the care and blessings and uh, blessings of his father's house for temporary fun and pleasures of this world. The father didn't stop him. I'm sure he pleaded with him not to go, but he watched, broken-hearted as the son went into the world. Our Father does not stop us from straying from Him. However, His Holy Spirit does plead with us to not go. I've often said the most miserable person in the world is the saved man who backslides. The one who is away from God is one of the most miserable people in the world. In Jewish eyes, there's no further that this son could have gone than to disrespect his father the way he did and to end up in a field feeding swine of all animals. Yet by repenting, the son was able to come home. By confessing to his father his sin, by the way, he cleared vertical and horizontal, amen? I have sinned against, my, uh, sinned against God and against my father. He took care of both. But by confessing to the father his sin, he was able to once again enjoy the benefits of being the father's son. He was a son, and he returned to his father as a son. The unsaved person, person cannot return home. The unsafe person cannot return as a son. They become a son in the first place when they accept him. We would think that this boy would need to be punished and severely chastised. He needs to be taught that what he did was wrong and taught to never do it again. After all, that was what the elder brother thought. But no, he was welcomed with open arms by a father who waited on the roadside looking for his son every day for his return. Why no chastening? First Corinthians eleven thirty one. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. If we judge ourselves, there's no need for chastisement. True confession and is real and transforming in its power. And there's no need to correct if we've corrected ourselves. 2 Corinthians 7.11 says before, For behold the self same thing. We see this in the son For he sorrowed after a godly sort with care, careful, what carefulness it wrought in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what revenge. You see all of this in the life of this young man who repented and came back to his father. He was ready to be a servant. He humbled himself and did the right thing. From these seven major passages it can be concluded that the effects of sin on the spiritual life of a child of God is promised if we uh, the effects are, are, are a reality but the cure for those effects are promised to us if we will repent and make genuine confession to God of our sins. We as believers are called to live holy lives. Be ye holy as I am holy. We're Left in this flesh that wars against the Spirit to do what is right. And there will be times that we fail. But when we fail, we will see the effects of sin in our lives. We will see the misery. We will see all of it. We will see the chastisement from the Lord come upon us. We will see a feeling of shame as the Holy Spirit reproves us and convicts us. We'll see the effects of unconfessed sin show up in our lives in areas of fear, nervousness, anxiety, sickness, and many other ailments and depression. To the end, unconfessed sin will lead to death. But God has given us a plan to help us be cleansed, forgiven, and to be back in fellowship with our Father, with our Christ, our Savior, with the Holy Spirit who wants to fill us, and move in us, and lead us in the paths of righteousness. Is there anything today that stands between you and the sweet fellowship with the Father? Is there anything that is stunting the growth of the fruit of the Spirit in your life? That love, that joy, that peace, that long-suffering, that gentleness, that goodness, that meekness, that faith, that self-control or spirit control? Say, you know, I just don't know that I have the patience for that person anymore. Well, it's a sign that the fruit of the Spirit is not growing strong in your life. Amen? If you don't have peace, if you don't have joy, if you don't have that gentleness and meekness and goodness in your life, something is wrong and something is stunting the growth of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. By the way, you don't see one. You see them all. Amen? confess, agree with God that it's sin, and then repent, change your mind about it, and choose to walk in newness of life that has been given to us. Do you want to live the great life? Then grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. Keep short accounts with Christ. Make it right with God today. and Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for those passages, Lord. Father, what a beautiful way you have shown us the way we ought to live, the way we ought to be renewed to you. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to seek our hearts and have you seek us out. Show us if there be any wicked way in us. And anything that your Holy Spirit points to, may we be quick to confess, quick to repent and say, Lord, I'll change. I pray that you do a work in our hearts and lives today. Help us to walk away renewed and strengthened with new life, new joy, no peace, new goodness in us. Lord, what an amazing thing it is that you offer When we confess, when we repent, when we come back to you and allow you to control us, you produce in us goodness. You help us do the right thing. You produce self-control. You produce that control by you. So that once we yield to you, you help us yield even more as we go through this life. Father, help us keep short accounts with you, I pray. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Let's all stand together. We'll sing a verse of invitation. If the Lord has spoken to your heart, do business with the Lord right now. Pray. Ask him to forgive you of any area of your life that you need to be confessed.